and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I am Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As many of our listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which is a short introduction to a range of policy areas, just touching on the things that we think you need to know. We have our seminar series, which is a look back at our conferences and our seminars to hear from es- experts such as Tony Fahey, and Petafor, Joe Larragui, and plenty of others. And then we have our interview series, where we sit down and have a chat with experts on policy areas and research that they're currently looking at. And today is one of those. And I am very delighted to be joined by Paul Goldrick Kelly of NERI, the think tank. Um, And today we're going to talk about his current research on the environment and environmental protection. So, Paul, thank you so much for agreeing to do this today. Uh, I really, really appreciate it, given how recently your blog came out. Um, Before we get started into the actual blog itself and and the whole idea about carbon lock-ins, let's chat a little bit about your work for NERI, so the the Nevin Economic Research Institute. As many of our listeners would know, um, they're quite closely aligned with the the trade unions. So given that the primary focus is on, uh, certainly of your work, is on kind of climate and just transitions, and I know there's political economy there too, but how does that fit with the whole trade union movement? It's not something that you would automatically think of? Mm, Yeah, I mean... In in one sense, um, I think uh, the the kind of uh, divide, or like sometimes what's characterised the divide between sort of green and and labour politics, might be kind of overstated. I mean, the, the just transition concept comes from the trade union movement, specific. I think in the nineteen seventies, uh, from workers in the United States who worked within the kind of uh, power plant industry. And that, although that was more related to kind of pollution and toxins, but it was a sort of recognition that, you know, you can't really separate those, those two interests out. Um, now in terms of my work and where we entered this, um, I suppose a lot of this was precipitated by um, what happened with board pneumonia. So as that kind of came on in say 2018, I think it was when, um, that planning de- uh, decision basically made it so that the government's plan to continue that peat fired plant um, couldn't get the go ahead. Uh, we we saw and we sort of observed that a lot of the response was very reactive. Um, so, you know, X decision occurs, government kind of comes in to, to try and sort of address uh, what, what's occurred. Whereas I, I think our perspective really and it, it like something this large scale, and I guess this this is where uh, my research and sort of um, getting into the how and why uh, we're we're sort of in this situation comes in. We, we there needs to be a lot more planning um, in these kind of situations. There needs to be more of a proactive approach. Uh, we if we know that we have to to get somewhere uh, within you know a given period of time, we should plan that out. And at the same time, I suppose we should plan that out in such a way that we have kind of win-win situations here. Like we needn't have a situation where this is all about sort of distributing costs. There can actually be benefits to, to green transition. We could address many long-standing problems. I mean, in the case of, of Borden Mona, we have the situation where the Midlands is kind of one of the poorer parts of the country. So why not use this as an opportunity to, to um, promote development in, in those places? 
why not um, use this transition to, to transition to kind of a more sustainable and kind of better job e economy? Um, so as I say, it's kind of um, at the center of this is trying to kind of build a perspective that unites the two and that says, you know, the transition can be a transition to a sustainable economy on both the social and ecological side. I'm fascinated by that that transitions piece and I live in the Midlands currently actually um and I live I live in the middle of bogs like they're, they're all around me um and I am fascinated by it because when we talk about transitions you know it we kind of talk about well new industries will replace yeah. what's what's going but presumably and you know just even instinctively there will be people who will lose out there will be people who whether through age or through capacity or just through just not having the will to retrain and regroup and do all that stuff. They've, they've come to a point in their working lives where it's just not viable for them. Like what, what mechanisms can be put in place there when we talk about a just transition to make sure that they aren't going to fall completely behind? Mm. Yeah, I, I guess that's sort of part of this bigger picture and this focus on institutions. And, and when when I'm looking at that in, in my work, it's more kind of formal institutions. Um, but like you say, I, I, I suppose uh, in my previous answer is more the the kind of um, uh, dynamic of making sure that people don't you know kind of bear the burdens of this is true. But I don't think it's it's the only thing on offer. But it certainly is. And um, but I think that would come into you know providing adequate um kind of retirement plans pension plans um improving our social welfare system i mean in many ways i think to give someone a viable option you know uh, it, it, it i suppose in many ways everybody agrees when it comes to transition on something um like training that's that's kind of uh, mom and apple pie uh, you won't really find somebody who doesn't like education in this context. But the question is, can you enable somebody to actually make that a viable move? You know, uh, telling everybody in the Midlands to to learn to code doesn't really strike me as as a, as an answer here. Or even if you want them to potentially go into you know newer high tech, they need to be able to afford to do so. If you can't afford to go into training, you know the the presence of of these kind of programs won't mean that much to you. So a lot of a, a lot of it is about kind of setting the enabling conditions around it, and to me that that involves uh, changes in, in a number of ways of kind of doing things. Now, in in certain respects, that could just be you know um, Ireland becoming more of a normal quote unquote European country, um, you know, improving. We our kind of provision systems when it comes to social protection are pretty um, pretty miserly um, in comparison. Um, some work from kind of colleagues um, coming out of the COVID pandemic actually showed that the likes of the, the pop payment, the 350 euro, actually just sort of brought us to middle of the pack of European norms in terms of what you perceive in social benefits, for example. Um, so, so as I say, you know, kind of moving more in that direction might be sort of an essential plank uh, of, of um, I, I, and I, I think, um, it's it's sort of I mean we we're both talking justice uh, a justice angle here what we think ought to happen but I also think it's it's on the practical level to bring people with you to actually achieve it you have to it can't be seen as simply um, 
green jobs or green industry is coming and this is going to decimate an area. And kind of if if you are left behind or you can't join in, well, good luck, goodbye. I, I don't think even from a pragmatic point of view, even if you didn't kind of care, which I think you should, um, about about the, the justice of that, I don't think it will work if, if you approach things in that way. So yeah, I'd, to kind of sum, I, I, I would think that this does involve improvements in the social protection system, a kind of viable kind of plan um, for for uh, people kind of retiring um, as well. In many of these places, uh, these these be older workers that we might be talking about, uh, for example. And so we have to kind of engage on each of those levels. Yeah, it's very interesting you talk about that kind of need to bring people with you because we saw certainly with the water charges, people were not brought along. We saw with carbon taxes, people still are not on board with that. Like they, they have not been brought mm. along. And the explanation given in relation to the introduction of carbon taxes or certainly part of the explanation was, well, it's a behavioral change tax. It's not meant to really be a revenue driver. It's meant to yeah. make people think a little bit more about what they use and how they use it. But if all you see is the stick, then you're pushing away from it. And, and you know, nothing is being ring fenced or very little is being ring fenced from that to actually put in place the say the transitional payments for example that might need to be put in place for older workers who aren't going to end up coding in the middle of the midlands even if they had the broadband to do that so i think it is it's really interesting that, that you need both you need the carrot as well there needs to be some level of if not comfort certainly not discomfort that you know if you can even just stand still as opposed to being made worse that might help bring this along mm-hmm. um so for i suppose for those of you who who don't already do so you really should subscribe to Neri's blog it's always very interesting um but this this week's one was was your own um and it's the the subject of today and we're talking about carbon lock-in so let's bring us very much back to basics here what are you talking about when you talk about what a carbon lock-in is? What does that mean? Okay, um, so basically carbon lock-in comes from the idea. It comes out of um, technology studies, innovation studies. And it's the idea that just because you have a superior technology or option doesn't mean that'll win out. So in a way, this sort of challenges aspects of you know the traditional story we're told that if, you know, if something better, um, for whatever reason, reason that it works more effectively, or in this case, you know, it produces less emission. If that comes along and it's a viable prospect, and when it comes to you know, kind of low carbon technologies, you see, you know, all these headlines: improved performance, low cost, and everything else. If that is the case, why aren't we seeing it deployed? Um, so it's a kind of basic, but bit, uh, question. But I suppose the the causes can be. Uh, complex in the, in the kind of proper uh, meaning of the term, and that that's that basically when you look at an energy system, say the energy system isn't just about the technical components within it. It's not simply just the wires uh, or you know the the pylons, etc. It's actually there's a whole system that's been built around it um, that kind of uh, occurs over time, and often. Um, I, I get into this in the piece. I don't know if, if I'm preempting anything here, but the, the a kind of notable example in, in technology studies, if you imagine this, is the QWERTY keyboard. So the QWERTY keyboard emerges, 
I believe now it's been a while since I read the paper, but I believe it was basically in response to on an old typewriter. Ease allowed you to sort of uh, reduce smudging um, on, on the old kind of style paper. Now, it as it sort of became entrenched, everybody starts using it. Basically, there's a sort of positive feedback loop here. Other people using it induces you to want to use it. So everybody um, builds that into their sort of assumptions. Um, people design operating systems uh, to complement it, et cetera. So even now, as people have come up with keyboard layouts that actually make more sense or more ergonomical would allow you to type faster, they're not going to be introduced because it costs too much to sort of move the system away from that. And the carbon lock-in idea is that something like that is occurring when it comes to, to fossil fuel use that essentially these systems are incredibly embedded for various reasons. So the costs of, of pushing in another direction are high so that the, the kind of pace of change is slow or, you know, essentially the, the, um, the setup of the system is resisting efforts to change it. But like, what are the, the specifically, if, if there are specifics, um, what are the, the QWERTY keyboards in the, the kind of just transition space in the environmental mm. space? I suppose the most noted one, so if you if you go to kind of the carbon lock-in literature, most of what you'll see talked about, and I imagine many listeners will be familiar with this, the, the idea of embedded emissions in, say, something like a coal fire power plant. And I guess that's pretty intuitive. You have a large upfront cost on, on this item. You know, you, you spend millions of euro setting it up, and you have an assumed operating lifetime uh, to... to to get back those costs. So if suddenly, you know, in the middle of uh, its operating cycle, um, you say, shut it off. Those forces, they're, they're going to resist you um, because that, that entails losses. So that would be a kind of notable lock-in example. My work, when I'm looking at institutions, it's sort of saying, now this can be, institutions can operate at the level of the, the incumbents, um, so they obviously will seek through a political system facing this kind of loss. They will resist efforts to change it. It can also be things as simple and mundane as um, the what the, the system is used to kind of regulating in terms of like how electric power works, like all these little nearly bureaucratic uh, minutiae about the system. But it, it sort of promotes you along one line. And if you were to change all of it, you know, say you have to move to a different energy system, and that means you have to change the specs of certain parts of the system or how it's regulated, that will kind of resist and make more costly the efforts to, to replace it. Um, so there's both, um, as I kind of get in uh, later, kind of in, in the, the blog post and in the piece of work, there's a political economy element here um, because there, there are people who stand to potentially lose out. So obviously when, they, when a system kind of emerges around it, you have the incumbent players who are used to the system as is, who benefit from its operation. Um, faced with the prospect of change, they might not like it, um, as, as many of us could intuit. But as I say, there's also kind of just more uh, the the kind of day-to-day um, -day kind of patterns that, that people are used to that we we kind of adopt institutionally that, that can affect these, these kind of processes. 
That is interesting. And I, I do want to talk about your your methodology, that whole kind of multi-level framework mm-hmm. that you refer to. But it's it's interesting because it ties into what you said earlier about planning. So myself and colleagues were in with a, a joint Oireachtas committee uh, very recently um, looking at the SDGs as a framework for mm-hmm. policy and, you know, for political decision making and you know, that that whole concept that you might look to the framework and the targets before you develop the policy rather than tagging the policy with the nice mm-hmm. color from the SDG. Um, and there was quite an, a bit of resist, like a, a surprising level of resistance from like a small quarter, but a, a vocal quarter um, who just did not see the point. You just didn't mm-hmm. see why this would be necessary. And when we explained things like, well, if you plan better, you don't have that outcome. You have this outcome. It's like, well, but that's just common sense. Like, yes, it is now, but clearly when that policy was being developed, this wasn't foreseen. Whereas if you, mm. if you look towards planning properly, then, yeah. you know, you, you build a, a better system. Um, and there, there is, I suppose that to that thing. I'm also struck because we're, we're kind of countdown to budget time already. Um, but you know it to do that to make those changes and to be persuasive perhaps in those changes you need to back it up with some level of funding you know you need to have the the compensation or the the reparation or whatever you might want to call it but initially i suppose talk to me about your methodology so you you mentioned this and i again i'm fascinated by it this multi-level framework and this how they interplay. So like you might have something that's kind of quite large scale national level kind of policy type side, but then there might be something that's kind of left field almost like, you know, is the the the, the interplay between those levels, is that the crux of it or is it that one kind of dominates? Mm. It's actually, it, it can depend on the situation really, actually. Um, it So again, um, the kind of complex systems framework and I'm, um, Glad you said the kind of unintended consequence, because that's also a dynamic here. So if you're seeing multiple things interacting and feedback into to one another, there can be, you know, a sense in which things develop because somebody, you know, wants it to develop that way or there, there's an interest group. There's also, yeah, unintended kind of consequences of, of policy. So we have to be very aware of that. And I, I kind of think that feeds into a perspective that says we can't, as you say, sort of just have... Um, green policy is an addendum. This has to be integrated into to all policy so that when we're, you know, sort of looking at um, X domain Y, green uh, green kind of considerations have to be at the, the, uh, the center of that. Now, when it comes to the multi-level perspective, it's essentially saying, um, so this perspective, again, it kind of comes out of how does transition happen? Um, so they have a, a general kind of historical model that says, Right. You, you kind of you can model things at the small scale that says that's the micro level, your niche. And that that can be where, you know, a new entrant comes along with a new technology. Say you can think of something like an electric car at the middle level of the social technical system. Now, that that just means a system of social provisioning. So that's they, they refer to something like transport as a social system but that in, incorporates all the institutions involved in that, the actors in it and the people who kind of operate and use it. And then at the highest scale, they call it the, the landscape. So the general kind of model and explanation that emerges from this is that, okay, you'll have 
entrants in who, who might be innovators um, at that niche scale. But it, and in many ways, it, to begin with, that'll be very kind of marginal. They'll be trying to sort of build up uh, a support base for themselves, even sort of learning how to, to make this a usable technology. We often see in technologies, for example, when they're introduced first, it's something that's a very, you know, um, but over time, as they become able to sort of produce it at scale, it becomes more effective, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially, if that um, momentum buildup, um, particularly when there's other forces, say, at the, the higher end scale, so in, in our case, you know, above transport, if we're talking about a general social focus now on kind of green technology, if you have a convergence in forces that sort of puts pressure on that middle layer tech system, you can see kind of movement happening. Um, and I guess when going back to the, the issue of carbon lock-in, carbon lock-in is basically, it's like what resists those kind of forces? What, what will kind of stop that from, from happening or slow it down? And that's that's a kind of way of, of thinking about carbon locking. Does that make sense? And it can be, am I right in saying it can be something quite like seemingly small, but it's important within the kind of wider frame of things. It's that kind of small grain of sand that that messes things up. Or, you know, is it something that has to be much more, I suppose, heavy duty, slow moving instrument of the state type stuff? I think the, the benefit of the model is that it could sort of be either. Um, either or both, and um, so the the kind of, it suggests that you're more likely to see movement when it's coming from multiple places, um, which again to me kind of on the policy front would say if we kind of align policy that so it's all pointing in the same direction, this is going to be a far more effective force than if simply it's it's coming from you know just the the micro scale and the top scale. And I might also meet, imply, you know, a move, a, a sort of role for civil society groups and stuff. Um, so this needn't be simply, you know, tech innovators, Tesla or something. This can also be, you know, um, social movements, um, groups like yourselves, ourselves, um, to trying to kind of put pressure on the, these these mid level systems. So yeah, the 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 benefits to me of this are that it can you can be sensitive to different types of change it can occur at different levels but it does suggest that level or these changes are more likely when it's coming from multiple directions okay and you, you mentioned as well you know and, and obviously you have a background in political economy and that that whole historical institutionalism um so the institutional machinery that can can make or break up policy what do you think specifically, if you can, are those kind of institutional mechanisms in the current system that are preventing progress or that are are providing that kind of block? Mm. Now, I would say kind of broadly, I mean, in a, in a sense, this will come out of the, the work as I kind of um, part of the, the broader project is looking at Ireland in comparison to other places to see what, what's happened here versus other places, and does that explain why Ireland's a laggard? But it would sort of suggest sort of institutions broadly, you know, um, if we think of building roads, uh, for example, you build departments, uh, you build all sorts of organizations that are used to and sort of, the, the sort of the path of, of least resistance institutionally uh, within the system uh, more broadly is towards roads as, as your sort of mechanism of transport. And that can be from things like, you know, 
suburbanization, all, all these things can link up in a, in a kind of complicated way. Um, so something like the road system, for example, um, it's dominance over rail, uh, just to, to give one example, um, could be one way of kind of like thinking about this as, as a sort of an example. And that institutions we've become used to, uh, speculatively, um, I would say that in the in the Irish case, I mean, there's some work that suggests that like one of the um, what seem politically as a major success story, even say of joining the European Union, and I'd say even kind of anecdotally, people people would recognise this. That one one thing that's really improved are the roads in Ireland. We've we've um, gotten used to you know kind of building motorways, and our institutions are sort of geared around that. Um, but that precludes other options. And when it comes to um, emissions, you know, building a road assumes the use of cars. Even if we change to electric vehicles, that assumes that you have to build an electric system that's big enough to support electric vehicles as opposed to, you know, um, lower energy use public transport, given that degree of sprawl. So you can see kind of how the, these things feed back in, into one another and institutions can, can kind of... Um, back it or reinforce the process. Yeah, and I mean, then obviously our, our whole industry becomes around, you know, your commute and your housing becomes around your commuting distance. And, mm. you know, for some of us, you know, we're lucky enough to to still work from home um, or at least work, work some sort of a hybrid way. But mm. for so many people, you know, in the last year or so, it has been a return. It has been a return to work. It's been a return to, to long commuting times to being back in in traffic standstill um you know i had the horror show of driving to dublin for work recently and i could not believe how long it took me to get from houston station to dublin city center it took me about as much time as it took me from home in athlone to get to houston station um you're gridlocked and yet there's very little option because the public transport is so scant um Mm. and it's you know again it's keeps coming up it comes up in almost all contexts now that that i'm engaged in anyway that silos just aren't working and yet we're still politically wedded to this is within my department this is within my budget line you know i'm not going to move over to your department and, and step into there even though if you don't do it here it's going to end up there or if it doesn't happen there it's going to come back at you further down the line, you know, that that lack of, again, that lack of planning, that lack of joined up kind of policy framework thinking. Um, so I suppose, and again, and I know you're, you're, you're still researching this, but the fact that you have been kind of looking comparatively at Ireland and, and other countries, you know, is there a pathway emerging or a tentative pathway emerging that like Irish systems and Irish, and that includes kind of, you know, governmental systems, but institutional systems industrial systems can move towards the likes of the Denmarks and the Finlands and the Swedens and the ones that tend to top sustainability charts you know is is there a a pathway emerging for that hmm. uh concerning I mean when when I look at the now without kind of having uh, looked at the uh, the detailed kind of case studies yet, I would say though the the kind of broader evidence when it comes to emissions is concerning to me uh, in in that respect, the fact that our emissions are still rising, um, 
it, it would be one kind of point of I think, you know, kind of a bit of proof in the pudding, um, which might relate kind of later when we, we talk about uh, budget priorities and, and, and what we should do. It would say, like, uh, for example, your, um, which you were kind of relaying there about kind of transport, it doesn't seem like, like in, in many uh, senses, the the increase in emissions post pandemic might kind of might be instructive there that transport was a big part of that. You, you had a huge people just sort of returned to the roads. So insofar as like the the system got a shock, this this might be a demonstration of of an embedded path point that the system got a shock. We were all kind of forced to you know not um, move you know a certain distance away from our house, and that had an effect. But as soon as that went. We, you saw increased road use and increased emissions as a result. Because and there was seemed, a dip in emissions during there was, kind of the height of COVID. There, there was an EPA, there was a dip. And then it was just like, well, that was that was clearly an anomaly. <laughs> we're back to, yeah. And that's, that sort of speaks to, it's a sort of systems um, uh, issue here. You know, it's a kind of, the path of least resistance in Ireland still appears to be continued emissions use. And... If that is the case, that to me sort of implies that you need to have really significant policy efforts to, to sort of move the ship. If you're in a situation where you're stuck, you need a big force to give you a push in the other direction. And you mentioned budget um, and uh, and the big force and the big force tends to come with big cost. And we've seen, you know, that the stability program update came out in, in April was talking about 65 billion worth of, of windfall surpluses, you know, tentative reviews of that suggest it could even be 70 billion. You know, it's, it's going to be 11 billion, like it's going to be big money. You know, what would be your asks in terms of, let's even just confine it to this budget, budget 24, you know, what will bring us closer to those better places to live? What are the things that we need to invest in, whether it's from the windfall in terms of, of infrastructure and investment, or it's looking at the, the normal budget, say, in terms of the current costs? Without, I suppose, um, being specific about this budget, the general kind of, um, I, I make kind of two points about the, which should be the, the general kind of move. I think in line with, with yourselves, I think in many senses, like the, the tax system has to become more of a, a, a normal European tax system. That relates to what we were saying earlier, all the kind of requisite supports to manage a change this big imply that we can't do so really on a threadbare social protection system. So that would be one element of it. Uh, the second part when it comes to the... Um, the windfall, to, to me, and I'm, I'm sure my colleagues in, in Neary would agree with me, the idea that we'd use that windfall and just sort of um, stow it away to deal with demographic aging or something like that, or, um, you know, the, this um, a, a crisis um, that, that never seems to, to come. To me, that seems a bit nuts, um, to be frank. Um, that a... a sudden kind of injection of funds um, from a volatile source of tax revenue is exactly the sort of thing that you you put towards investment. And um, so to me, those funds really should be directed towards one-off investments to really deal with kind of key social crises in the state 
one of which is obviously the low carbon transition. Uh, so that would be moving us in that direction towards that system change. And the second really that comes to my mind, although there'd probably be others, would be housing. And um, so, and I mean, uh, as I say, you know, the housing piece also isn't completely unrelated to the environmental piece. So if we, you know, the housing system should also be planned in such a way that we're making these communities that that make them kind of tenable for low carbon transport systems and everything else. Um, but really, those are the two kind of primary thoughts um, for me um, arising, kind of uh, coming into to budget season. And with that, I will thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you you taking the time and I really appreciate you, appreciate you breaking it all down for us. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to mention that's out there that you want to flag with people that they can look up or any, anything that you want to bring to people's attention? Uh, at the risk of you know, forgetting things, um, I would say I direct people to to our website. Um, we have a good bit of research coming out in a number of fields, you know, housing, uh, focused on um uh, the the um uh, issues policy issues in in the republic and the north of ireland so we're one of the few bodies who do that so um check that out nriinstitute.net absolutely and do subscribe to their their newsletter because it is very informative uh usually weekly but certainly when it comes in it is always worth a read uh thank you so so much so that's it for this week. Do check out Neary's website, neriinstitute.org. Um, do subscribe to their blog. It's always really interesting. Um, and as always, if there is anything or anyone that you would like to hear from or about, please do get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next week, stay safe.